Greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series. Uh, I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight for our talk here in person and also online on Zoom uh, on the Children of the People, writings by and about CUNY students on race and social justice by co-editor Rose Kim and contributor Linda Liu. Uh, Rose M. Kim is Associate Professor of Sociology at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, CUNY. She received her Ph.D. in Sociology from the Graduate Center and her B.A. in Art and Design from the University of Chicago. Uh, Professor Kim co-edited Women on the Role of Public Higher Education, Personal Reflections from CUNY's Graduate Center, uh, and Struggle for Ethnic Identity, Narratives by Asian American Professionals. Uh, she has published in various journals, including Amerasia, Ethnic and Racial Studies, Qualitative Inquiry, and Socialism and Democracy. Uh, she has previously worked as a reporter at the New York Newsday and the Los Angeles Times and part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of the 1992 L.A. riots or uh, as it's, uh, or at Insurrection or Saigu, an event she reexamines in her scholarly work. Uh, her research areas include racialization, mass media discourse, and public higher education. Uh, and with her is Linda Liu, is a Ph.D., PhD student at uh, in American Studies at uni uh, New York University and a graduate of Hunter College CUNY, of which I'm also a alumni of. <laughs> uh, Lou organized with the Coalition for the Re Revitalization of Asian American Studies at Hunter, also known as CRASH, and is a curator of the CUNY Digital History Archive Collection on the Fight for Asian American Studies at Hunter College. And with that, please welcome Professor Kim and Linda Liu. I wanted to speak just a little bit about the origins of the book. Um, the book grew out of the participation um, of my co-editor, Grace M. Cho, and I in the 2017-2019 Mellon Seminar on Public Engagement and Collaborative Research at the Graduate Center. Our research project was called Autoethnographies of Public Education and Racial Injustice. The project's aim was to amplify the voices of CUNY students who are too often reduced to statistical profiles or ignored entirely in discussions on public higher education. We wanted to highlight the voices of CUNY students because we know how valuable they are. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term autoethnography. It plays on the term ethnography, a qualitative research method where the social scientist immerses himself, herself in a community and observes social interactions. Autoethnography is a practice that emerged in the 1970s whereby social scientists critically reflected on their own lives as a way to critique soci the society in which they lived. The method was especially practiced in ethnic studies and women's studies courses as people of color and women use their own life experiences to challenge and critique hegemonic social discourses. Uh, in the two-year seminar, Grace and I developed two projects. One was a writing workshop for past and present CUNY students held at the Asian American Writers Workshop and taught by the poet, writer, Bushmore Raymond. Um, the second project was the creation and performance of an original play written by the Theater for Social Change, an ensemble of formerly incarcerated women who pursued college and postgraduate studies after being released from prison. We received additional essays for the book through an open call asking past and present CUNY students to reflect on education and social justice. From 76 submissions, we selected 20. 
Our book features almost 50 contributors and 30 written works, including poems, two original plays, and personal and scholarly essays. The book includes generations of students past and present showing the rich diversity of our community. The book also serves as an informal history of CUNY, covering the fight for open admissions, the 1969 renaming of City College as the University of Harlem, the 1991 CUNY strike and occupation of the Graduate Center, and the fight for Asian American studies at Hunter, um, as our next um, reader and presenter, Linda Liu, will discuss. Thank you, Rose, um, and thanks to Ari and Anthony for organizing this talk. Um, everyone for being here in person and online. Um, yeah, I'm going to be reading from my chapter in the book, um, which is titled Resistance Everywhere We Went, The Fight for Asian American Studies at CUNY. Um, that is about my time um, organizing for Asian American Studies at Hunter College, where I was a student from 2013 to 2017. Um, and yeah, very grateful um, to Rose for editing the essay and the collection along with the other co-editors um, and for finding a home for this essay that I wrote um, in my last year at, at school at Hunter um, and really captures a lot of like what that time was like for me. Um, and I'm really humbled and honored to be in the company of this book. Um, and the title of the piece, Resistance Everywhere We Went, um, actually comes from an interview that Betty Lee Sung did with Anthony Wong here at ARI um, that was published in Asian American Matters. And a lot of the ARI publications were actually really important to me while uh, writing this chapter. And Betty Lee Sung, who um, passed earlier this year at the age of 98, was a co-founder of ARI. Um, and laid the foundation for the first Asian American Studies courses at City College and um, on the East Coast and without whom, you know, the history that I'm writing about wouldn't have existed. So um, with that, I'll, I'll just be kind of skipping around in the chapter to, to give you a sense of some of the things I touch on. Um, so the history of CUNY is the history of student struggle. This statement is likely obvious to some and a provocation to others being that the history of student activism at CUNY is often buried. This institutional memory is difficult to pass on in a university system where a significant portion of students work and attend school part-time and with campuses dispersed throughout the city's five boroughs. However, revisiting CUNY history challenges the notion that commuter students ever idly pass through the institution. Rather, it demands we recognize students' repeated struggles over power within the largest urban public university system in the country. The year 1969 figures as an important date in CUNY history. It marks a series of student strikes and building takeovers at the City College of New York and throughout the CUNY system, which led to the establishment of open admissions. In response to state budget cuts to SEEK, a program that provides a variety of supports to underrepresented students and a 20% reduction in admissions, black and Puerto Rican students at City College took over 17 buildings, shut down South Campus, and renamed it Malcolm X Che Guevara University and later the University of Harlem. Amongst other demands, the students called for CUNY's racial composition to reflect that of New York City high schools, which ultimately prompted the Board of Higher Education to institute the policy of open admissions, as well as a separate school for third world studies, reminding us that CUNY was a contemporary in nationwide movements for ethnic studies, despite the attention concentrated on the West Coast and histories of ethnic studies given the third world liberation front. Um, in March 1972, a group called Concerned Asian Students staged a three-day takeover of Gothel's Hall, 
which housed the Asian Studies Department. <coughs> the takeover was prompted by demands for a curriculum that was more Asian American centered and which spoke to the struggles of local Asian American communities, as well as for greater student power and representation in departmental policy-making decisions and the hiring of a new chair and bilingual staff. Some 50 to 60 people participated in the takeover, including members of Iwer Kun, a national Asian American revolutionary organization that drew inspiration from the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords. Hundreds of Asian, Black, and Puerto Rican students also rallied in front of Cohen Library. Community members from Asian Americans for Action, AAA, the first Pan-Asian community organization in New York, provided food and supplies. Hiri Kuchiyama, the prominent civil rights activist and AAA member, spoke at the rally, saying the eyes of the community were on the development of Asian studies at CCNY. The students ended up winning a new department chair, four new faculty positions, a counselor, and a community liaison. It's important to note the coalitional dimensions of this action both between students of color on campus, but also between students and community activists. Both Iwakun and AAA membership included CCNY students, many of whom were former college dropouts who went back to school to reconnect with campus struggles. The Asian Studies program at City College functioned as an academic space and as a space for radical Asians to meet and connect. It grew the Asian American movement in New York. Ethnic Studies programs, therefore, are not only born out of movement struggle, but crucial to maintaining the lifeline of that struggle. Um, more than a decade after the Gothels Hall takeover, buzz about Asian American studies was picking up at Hunter College. Though the first Asian American studies course at Hunter ran in 1972, it was not until 1989 that a confluence of activity by students and faculty would lead to the first full-time tenure track hire. That year, Asian American students brought the annual East Coast Asian American Student Union, ICASU, conference to Hunter, while Assistant Provost Shirley Hewn, then President of the Association for Asian American Studies, AAAS, convened the annual AAAS conference at Hunter. Around the same time, CUNY-wide tuition increases prompted another wave of student protests. Strikes and building occupations took place in at least 13 of CUNY's 20 campuses. The strikes acted as a platform upon which Hunter students made their demands for an Asian American Studies program. It was an opportune time, given the presence of Hewn as Assistant Provost and Paul LeClerc as Hunter President, who had a par parallel agenda to increase multicultural aspects of the curriculum. Student demands were met and the Asian American Studies program offering an Asian American Studies minor was launched in the fall of 1993 with Peter Kwong as its inaugural director. Um, skipping forward to the time when I was at Hunter, um, in March of 2016, the group I was part of, uh, the Coalition for the Revitalization of Asian American Studies at Hunter Crash, launched a campaign exposing the state of Asian American studies at Hunter and CUNY. We understood the lack of administrative support for the AASP to be endemic of CUNY's larger institutional failure to support students of color. We held a town hall where we linked our program struggles to the closures of ethnic studies departments and the tightening of admissions criteria across CUNY that, were, that was leading to decreases in black and Latinx student enrollment. The town hall took place in the midst of and was inspired by a wave of student protests at Yale University and the University of Missouri concerning issues of racial justice and campus climate that made clear to us the stakes of ethnic studies. We announced five demands. The implementation of an Asian American Studies Department and major, the creation of hiring lines for five full-time Asian American Studies faculty, increased funding for the newly created department, disaggregation of data on Asian Asian American students, and the creation of scholarships for Asian Asian American students with critical needs, particularly undocumented, low-income, and LGBTQIA students. For many of us in CRASH, this town hall and pursuing these demands would permanently change our relationship to the university, 
how we understood its inner workings and how it saw us. I want to paint a picture of the textures of engaging in student activism, what it looks like and what it feels like. You're lied to by administrators who do so while making you feel like they are being honest. Each one tries to convince you that they are the one you should really trust above anyone else. They are playing a game which you did not ask to be included in, trying to one-up each other on being the most committed to students. The Dean of Arts and Sciences says that the school is facing severe budget cuts and that they cannot hire anyone that year, but later the president brags at a public event about how savvy they were with locating funds, hiring a total of 13 people. The token administrator of color is sent repeatedly to deal with you and tells you that there are lanes for students, faculty, and administration, and that you, as students, ought to, quote, stay in your lane. <gasps> Meanwhile, you wonder why this person is spending so much time keeping tabs on you, even though they are the school's Title IX coordinator, and the school has just been found to have violated the federal civil rights law barring sexual discrimination. Campus security cites a fake rule to disband your protests and calls the cops on you. Administrators who have no business directing student clubs and no expertise in Asian American studies continuously tell you what they think is best. Other students tell you that being oppositional to the administration is not the most strategic way to get what you want. They dismissively call you a rabble rouser, and perhaps you are. Everyone will feel they have the right to tell you how to be angry. You are made to feel that you are ungrateful, that you are nothing more than a troublemaker. This is meant to dismiss the amount of time and energy you have spent recovering institutional memory, organizing students and faculty, and advocating for this program. At times, student activism feels like giving yourself endlessly to an institution that insists on misunderstanding you. Making trouble is a kind of care. What the administration willfully interpreted to be a threat, Crash understood to be a form of care. Not necessarily for the university, but towards the possibilities of the university and the kinds of radical spaces and socialities that can emerge from inhabiting the university subjunctively, to follow Jigna Desai and Kevin Murphy. I offer this brief history of the struggle for ethnic studies at CUNY and reflections on the experience of, of student organizing to convince a particular rela historical relationship between students of color and CUNY. It is a relationship in which students of color have had to fight to preserve themselves in the university and which has been marked by repeated attempts by the administration to elevate the status of CUNY at the cost of students of color. Betty Lee Sung said in regard to establishing Asian American studies at CUNY, quote, we were met with resistance everywhere we went, end quote. There was resistance at every turn, but in turn we also resisted. This fraught relationship between students of color and the university stands at odds against the liberal multicultural public image of CUNY that has become the core of its marketing strategy in recent years. Stop there. Um, great, thank you, Linda. I, I just think it's so important um, that your essay talks about the how ethnic the ethnic studies movement on the East Coast because yeah, there is so much focus on the West Coast. Um, so I'm really glad you wrote the essay. Um, my essay that I'll be reading from is called 20 Years at CUNY. Um, and yeah, it kind of reflects on um, my education here. So um, as Anthony mentioned in the introduction, I was a reporter before I went to graduate school. And um, so I went to graduate school starting in my mid-30s, so I was much older than my cohort. And going to school at CUNY just radically altered my view of society and culture, and it changed my life. And um, so I wanted to talk about that. Um, so picking up from the middle somewhere. In writing this essay, I realized what a transformative experience studying and teaching at CUNY over the last 20 years has been for me. 
My education here has radically altered my views of society and social justice and taught me the importance of public engagement. It has especially made me value the important role of public higher education in developing a critical perspective. As befits such a complex pluralistic society as ours, it is essential to cultivate critical perspectives so we can have a well-rounded, balanced assessment of our collective social situation. Such an orientation also helps us to better plan our future goals and actions. I'm grateful to have studied with the brilliant, self-reflective faculty members who nurtured critical perspectives of society not typically covered in the popular or corporate media, and also from my fellow classmates who represented a broad swath of humanity and taught me even more. I entered graduate school relatively late at life. At 36, I was significantly older than many in my cohort. I had dropped in and out of the University of Chicago, striving to be a novelist and also struggling to earn money to pay for tuition. For my last several years after my parents had gone bankrupt, I'd worked full-time as a secretary at the college to get a 50% discount on my tuition. After I finally earned my BA at 28, I worked as a journalist, most substantially for six years at New York Newsday, a daily newspaper in New York City. Amidst the massive corporate downsizing of the newspaper that was killing a job I had once loved, I decided to quit my job, get married, and apply to graduate school. Like so many other significant moments in my life, my enrollment at the Graduate Center was a fortunate turn that yielded prospects and outcomes I had never anticipated. Until then, I had generally thought positively about American society. I was aware of inequalities and injustice, having personally experienced them as the youngest child in my family, as a girl and as an Asian American. But I had directed most of my anger and resistance toward my parents and the Korean culture they represented, rather than wondering about the social forces that had divided their homeland into warring states and brought them to this country. I embraced the United States myth of national progress, seeing this country as an escape from my parents' traditional constraints and as a place where my dreams might flourish and unfold. My success in school and in journalism reinforced my generally positive assessment of U.S. society. I'm skipping ahead. Um, in graduate school, my view of the dominant mainstream corporate media, of which I'd been a proud badge-carrying mem member, altered radically. By studying a rich array of critical social theorists, from Karl Marx to Franz Fanon to Bell Hooks, I deeply considered how violence, oppression, and exploitation structured our social reality. I grew increasingly aware of how denigrating narratives of the other, whether poor, black, women, Asian, Korean, immigrant, or disabled, were deeply interwoven into the social fabric and culture of the United States. States. I learned about the Korean War and the role of the United States in dividing the country, propping up military dictatorships, and occupying it to this day. My parents had rarely spoken about their lives in Korea or during the war, so I was well into my 30s when I first asked about their experiences and learned that American bombers had killed my paternal grandmother and uncle. For my doctoral dissertation, I critically reexamined my participation as a member of the reporting team at the Los Angeles Times that won a Pulitzer Prize, the profession's highest honor for its coverage of the 1992 L.A. civil upheaval that I call the 1992 L.A. riots, insurrection, Saigu. The tripartite term reflects how different participants viewed the event. For the dominant white supremacist society, as reflected in the Times' coverage, the riots were an eruption of violence perpetuated by blacks. For African Americans, as reflected in the black press, the violence was a justifiable response to the initial state-sanctioned violence, um, state-sanctioned police assault on Rodney King and the equally violent court acquittal of the four police officers who had been charged with using excessive force. 
For Korean Americans who call the event by its date, Saigu, representing 429 or April 29th, the riots reflect the U.S. government's disregard for an abandonment of Korean immigrants who suffered a disproportionate amount of the damages, a total loss of 2,300 small businesses and nearly $400 million. Upon ruminating over and analyzing the newspaper's coverage during the course of five years, I concluded that it had been shallow and racist and, and that as one of the few Korean-American reporters, I had been played to create a multiracial facade while delivering a dominant narrative that supported white supremacy, the police, and the law. As C. Wright Mills might say, it was a terrible, magnificent lesson. When I started teaching at BMCC in 2007, there were more terrible, magnificent lessons to learn. I thought I had an awareness of poverty in New York City, having worked as a reporter in the city for six years, covering some of the city's poorest neighborhoods and schools. Furthermore, I'd studied social inequality in my doctoral coursework and as a graduate student worked on various CUNY campuses, including Bronx Community College. However, working full-time as a professor, teaching four or five classes a semester, dealing with as many as 150 students in a single session, I became much more acutely aware of how crushing poverty was in the city, especially for our students whose median household income was $28,400 in 2017. I've had students who lived in homes without electricity or water. I've had students who were homeless. Typically, they disappear. I've had students who were fleeing domestic abuse and living in a shelter. I've had students who had stolen food to survive. Presently, I have numerous students who don't own a desktop or a laptop computer and write their papers on their cell phones, later printing them out in the campus computer lab. There are so many students who are indelibly printed on my mind. I remember a young woman who immigrated from Yemen to the Bronx at the age of 10. She described having to climb giant mountains for hours with her sister and cousins to attend a faraway school back in her homeland. When she turned 14, her parents sent her back to get married. Her much older husband constantly pressured her to quit high school, which she finally did. When she was in my class, she was 22 and already had four children, with the eldest seven. She was critical of the patriarchal culture that had married her at a young age and in the process of divorcing her husband and pursuing a college degree. I remember a 20-year-old Chinese-American woman who had immigrated to the United States with her family 10 years earlier. Even though she'd been here for some time, her command of spoken and written English was weak, having spent most of her time among Chinese language speakers. She had come to my house office to get help in her final paper. She said she worked in a nail salon from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., which was better than the restaurants where you work from 9 to 11 p.m. She said her dad, a restaurant worker, didn't understand why she was going to college and that he wanted her to just work and earn money. He's old fashion. He doesn't know why I'm going to school, she said, but I'm young and I think I can do more. I remember a young Filipino woman who was undocumented. She had graduated college in the Philippines, then worked in the hospitality industry there. She felt frustrated by the limitations of the work and the low pay and eventually came to the United States and overstayed her tourist visa. Her first jobs were cleaning motels in the South. Eventually, she came north to New York City and was studying, hoping one day to be a nurse. It was unclear how she would get there. Um, so anyhow, those are just some of the stories of the students I've had over the years. Um, there are many more stories in the book. Did you actually discuss the uh, process of creating the book? Uh, whose ideas was it? Okay. Um, I'd say probably the process, gosh, took 
maybe like three and a half years. Um, it was quite challenging because we had so many contributors. Um, so as I briefly mentioned at the beginning, the book started as a research project supported by um, the Center for the Humanities at the Graduate Center, their Mellon Seminar. Um, and so Grace and I had applied for that project, and we had two projects we wanted to develop. One was autoethnographic essays in a writing workshop, the Asian American Writers Workshop, led by Bushra Raymond. And the second project was um, the creation of an original play um, by the Theater for Social Change, an ensemble of women who were incarcerated and pursued higher ed after they were released. Um, so those were the two main projects that developed out of the Mellon Project. And uh, since we needed more material for the book, we had an open call for essays asking past and present CUNY students to submit ideas um, for essays on race and social justice. We received over 70 um, proposals, and we selected 20, of which Linda was one of the ones we chose. So there were three editors, Grace M. Cho, who's not here, also Robin McGinty. All three of us were doctoral students at the Graduate Center. Uh, well, how did you Well, in the open call, we had just asked for proposals, so they weren't full essays. So, um, but yeah, I think there could be another, you know, more volumes. I mean, I really feel like CUNY is so rich with stories and, you know, information, valuable information. So, but we don't have a book in the works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's a question online from Judy Yu. She says, she thanks you for your presentation, it's so powerful. Uh, how can we all connect and amplify these stories? Um, she would like have this in her fourth work. Uh, she's also a version commission of that book. Um, that's, that's the black race and ethics that you should that you. Um, you know, that was one of my hopes <laughs> in the book, <coughs> that, um, that it could be used for coursework and also for organizing. I feel like at CUNY, you know, so many of us are so busy. <laughs> We're just running around, you know, going to jobs, going to classes. So we don't really, um, I don't know, I, I don't feel like we really n nurture and cultivate um, CUNY. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <coughs> or, yeah. So... Um, so I feel like, yeah, please get the book. I think there are a lot of really interesting essays that, you know, can, can, that can be used in many different classes. Yeah, and we did have conversations with the um, Center for Humanities at the Graduate Center, is that right, um, mm -hmm. about how to, you know, get this book in as many places as possible. And um, I know one of the contributors, I believe it was Wynette, um, who's a librarian at one of the... CUNY colleges um, had a lot of great suggestions about, you know, getting your library to order the book. Um, <coughs> and, yeah, so I would en encourage that. And um, and also we talked about, you know, getting it to different kinds of, like, programs, cohorts, like having everyone in, in the first cohort incoming in, at the Graduate Center to, like, have this book to read, because they're all going to then go out and teach at CUNY campuses and, like, to have a sense of who are CUNY students and like what do their lives look like um, would be really amazing. And um, 
and when I was like preparing for for this, I also remembered, and I've never gone to tell you this, <laughs> but um, I was. Before I started my career program, I was briefly at the Graduate Center. I did two years in a PhD program there, and uh, it was very—I was very lost and like didn't know what I was doing, and was very alienated. And I came across your other co-edited book, *Women on the um, Role of Public Higher Education*, which was a collection of like personal reflections on the Graduate Center, and particularly uh, um, from the Department of Sociology that I was in at the Graduate Center, and. Reading that was like such an amazing, uh, it just made me feel so much less alone and it was like really a companion for my first year um, at the Graduate Center. So I kind of feel like this book is really similar um, and can be like this really great companion to people's time at CUNY. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would really encourage, um, especially if you teach at CUNY, to use the essays in this book because they're just like wonderful stories. Speaking about Wynette Clyde, the librarian at City Tech, um, she started her college career so haphazardly at BMCC. And, you know, I remember when I started teaching at BMCC, I used to be so frustrated, like, oh, why, why do these students come to me at the last minute and, you know, tell me about some disaster in their life? And, um, and I just, it, it took years of teaching at CUNY to really understand, you know, what are going on in the students' lives. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many inspiring stories of people who came and really found themselves and found their lives at CUNY. And I think it could be really inspirational for students. Because I think they look at professors and they just think we're like alien creatures that came from another planet. And they don't realize, like, wow, there's students like me who started here at community college right. and, you know went on to do great things. Uh, uh, Linda, so you were part of Craft Tech in 2016 and did the campaign, mm -hmm. right? But then, uh, do you know the current status of Craft or the current status of the Hunter, you know, the original study that Hunter right now? Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know too much, but um, to my, well, when I graduated, um, from Hunter, kind of as a result of our organizing, it was a pretty fraught time, and um, the administration really cracked down pretty punitively on our actions. And so, if folks don't, aren't familiar, um, the uh, director of our program was was let go, was fired, um, and. In the years after, um, I talk about this in the chapter, I really saw their response as a kind of like trying to weed out any real um, trace of student dissent or like students trying to make their voices heard. So um, another one of my co-organizers um, who really led Crash, Kevin Park, w worked at um, the Asian American Studies program and he was also let go from his position. So it was really like a kind of clearing out of um, people who were trying to make noise and um, fight for the kind of education that they wanted to see. And so um, to some extent, I think that was like kind of effective. Um, right now there is a, a new director that was hired, but to my knowledge, the, that crash is not active and there um, is, yeah, it was active for at least another year or two after I graduated because there were still some underclassmen um, who were involved. And so that's really important, just like building that leadership pipeline. But what's also important is having you know, um, uh, the kind of like larger environment that fosters student um, activism and 
having spaces for students to, to meet and talk, and I'm sure the pandemic did a number as well, but um, yeah, to my knowledge, I, I don't know that Crash is active today. Um, But I do, I do know that at Brooklyn College, um, they, there are lots of efforts to try to start an Asian American Studies program there. And so, yeah, I don't see any of these things as being like ever over or done with, but it kind of just like picks up in these fits and starts. And that's, that's also why the institutional memory piece is important. And um, yeah, I'm also glad that this chapter exists here also as like just having it in a place for students to refer back to, um, to know that they're picking up on a history that I was also picking up from before and so on and so on. I want to thank uh, Professor Kim and Linda again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you can purchase The Children of the People online from the uh, DIO Press Dio, is it? And anywhere. Uh, uh, Dio Press website and uh, Amazon as well for $38.99. The link is available on their talk webpage. And with that, have a good evening. Remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need and have a good weekend. And please purchase the book. Thank you.